Hello, everybody, and welcome to Project HR, a podcast dedicated to building better workplaces. Project HR is brought to you by IRI Consultants. IRI empowers leaders to prevent and solve mission-critical workforce issues through holistic and sustainable strategies. For more information, you can visit IRI at iriconsultants.com. I am Jennifer Oroqua, Director of Business Development for IRI, and your host for this episode of Project HR. It's no secret that the 2022 midterms held high stakes for Biden's agenda and for the National Labor Relations Board. The result of those elections ushers in a divided federal government for the next two years, likely putting Biden's labor-focused agenda on the back burner. But what does that mean for employers? Here to talk with me and hopefully answer that question today is Scott Purvis, Chief Operating Officer for IRI Consultants. Scott is going to help us focus on what employers and HR teams are facing now and what changes we can anticipate over the next 12 to 18 to 24 months. Scott, thank you so much for joining me here today on Project HR. Hey, thanks, Jen. Really great to be with you today. So one of President Biden's strongest campaign promises was to be the most pro-union president in history. In your opinion, has he lived up to that promise? Absolutely, Jen. Um, You know, when he when he came out as as being the strongest pro-labor president, uh, I think a lot of us were somewhat suspect of his ability to do that. But uh, in the first two years of his administration, he most certainly has uh, delivered on that promise. He's stacked the deck with his administration by embedding a number of uh, labor officials throughout his administration. He has a very active National Labor Relations Board and, frankly, has created a significant amount of tailwinds behind organized labor's current thrust to increase organizing and to secure their place in today's workforce. So let's talk a little bit about what Biden has been able to accomplish over the last couple of years and, and what he hasn't. Yeah, it's a little bit of a mixed bag. I think through executive orders, through his influence within uh, his administration, placement of National Labor Relations Board members, things that are really in direct control outside of Congress, it's fair to say that, that President Biden has been quite effective. He launched his task force, White House Task Force Committee, co chaired by Vice President Kamala Harris and Secretary of Labor Marty Walsh. Mm-hmm. And was able to really generate a lot of lot of publicity, if you will, with that initiative. However, on the legislative side of things, it really has been much ado about nothing. He's not been able to get his hallmark piece of legislation, the PRO Act, through mm-hmm. Congress. It passed the House of Representatives, but it stalled in the Senate because some of the more moderately leaning Democrats did not sign off for it. So they were attempting to get to that magical fifty number, where Vice President. Harris could then push it across the the finish line and over to the White House, but uh, that just has that just has not happened legislatively. So um, I think all things considered, what he's been able to accomplish thus far has certainly fulfilled a lot of tangible actions to immobilize his strong uh, organized labor base to support his administration. So what was at stake with the midterms with regard to the NLRB? Well, I think probably the most significant. One was, of course, if they could have retained, if the Democrats could have retained a supermajority in both houses of Congress and perhaps increased their presence in the Senate, they would have perhaps had a better shot at delivering President Biden's legislative agenda. But more importantly, there's a funding question in the appropriations process that the NLRB is claiming to be vastly underfunded. Just this week, there was a a plea, a letter written by the chair and the general counsel pleading Congress to give funding, or there's going to be furloughs and layoffs. And so there's a lot of maneuvering 
happening right now. And so all of that was in play, both appropriations as well as trying to get to that magic number to push the legislative agenda. All of that was in play during the midterms. Yeah, for sure. And you mentioned the PRO Act a minute ago. Does the Democratic retention of the Senate mean that that might come back into the spotlight or you think that's still stalled even with the win? Well, again, there's a little bit of a wild card factor with what what the final outcome is in the state of Georgia after the runoff election. But uh, with that set aside, uh, we know at this point that the Democrats have, have maintained their majority status in the Senate. But that does not change the position of the two or three moderate Democrats who have been holdouts on the PRO Act. So I, I suspect that, that there's not going to be a lot of movement in 2023 or in 2024 uh, with the PRO Act. I think what will continue to happen is elements of the PRO Act will, attempted, will attempt to be put in play through rulemaking mm-hmm. and other influences within the National Labor Relations Board as much as possible. Yeah, and certainly we've seen that before where it's broken out into pieces and, and you know, pushed through in, in small ways. Going back to that issue of the funding for the Labor Board, what do the results of the midterm mean for that? Well, now that the Republicans have achieved uh, majority status in the House of Representatives, it's it's going to have a significant impact on funding. They will have the ability to stall on the appropriations bill. The, the board is, is asking for $314 million, mm-hmm. which is a significant increase over their, their current budget. They have not had an increase in their appropriations, uh, I think, in four plus years. And so uh, it's going to have a significant increase, and it will heavily curtail the board's ability to enact a lot of their agenda. That The backlog of work at the board right now is just a tsunami. It's overcoming the field offices at the board. Mm-hmm. If furloughs are inevitable, that's going to further exacerbate that. There's a long queue handling unfair labor practice charges. And so there's this backlog of work is what the board is using to try to uh, garner support for appropriations and funding. But uh, with with the Republicans controlling the House, it's going to be a very uh, difficult hill for them to climb to get funding, which will be the Republicans' way of curtailing uh, President Biden's labor agenda. Well, what about the impact on upcoming NLRB nominations? What, what does that, that House majority mean for that? Well, actually, it, that will mean really nothing because the President Biden, being the leader of the Democratic Party and president, mm-hmm. will control the three two uh, prevailing administration's dominance on the board. So for those members of the board that are whose terms are about to expire, one is a Republican seat that will be replaced by a Republican. Um, I think that there will be significant effort to retain the majority of the board at, at five members. It, there's always that option where where the Democrats will stall the appointments. So we'll have to wait and see a little bit to see what's going on there. I think that there's enough Democratic influence inside the beltway that that the board will sustain full operating strength. Even if they go down to four members, the, the Democratic majorities will still prevail. Yeah, that makes sense. All right, Scott, I'm going to take a sponsorship break right now. But when we return, I want to talk about how even without legislative power, the NLRB can impact workplaces and what HR teams should be doing right now to prepare. Stay with us. In today's ever-evolving political and economic climate, the relationship you have with your employees is critical to the success of your business. 
but it is also the most vulnerable. At IRI Consultants, we understand the pressures your labor and employee relations teams are under, from changes at the NLRB, to immigration issues, to controversial Supreme Court decisions. The IRI team brings 40-plus years of expertise. Our team includes published authors, CEOs, human resources, and communications professionals, former labor and employee relations executives, public relations experts, investigative journalists, and even award-winning podcasters. The IRI team will work with you every step of the way so that you can focus on running your business while we handle your trickiest labor and employee relations challenges. Get started today at IRIConsultants.com. I'm back now with Scott Purvis, Chief Operating Officer for IRI Consultants. So, Scott, let's talk a little bit about the, how the NLRB, led by General Counsel Abruzzo, can make impactful changes on their own. Well, as we've seen for the first two years of the Biden administration, when she ascended to the GC role, General Counsel Abruzzo has been extremely active. She has signaled very strongly what her agenda was going to be. She's made no bones about it. And she has followed through vigorously on a number of those items. She is certainly focused on tilting the the scale of power back to the worker, uh, remedying in her uh, mind some of what was undone in the previous administration. But I would say uh, not only reversing what happened during the Trump administration, but even going so much farther uh, in her quest to, to really shift the power back to the American worker. And so through the process called rulemaking and case law, there's a lot of influence. There's a lot of flip-flopping or vacillating that happens at the board that impacts how businesses across our country interpret and are held accountable to the National Labor Relations Act. So let's get into it a little bit. What kind of changes are we talking about? Well, it's really a a possible sea change here. There's the way that we're able to communicate with employees, the way that unions are able to access property, the way that we treat uh, 1099 or contractor employees through joint employer rulings. Uh, many, uh, Many companies leverage outsourced services and functions to acquire specialized talent in various areas that are now being hotly debated again as to whether or not that they can actually be co-employees of the employer and also the vendor to which they are employed. And does that therefore give them access to to engage in collective bargaining? The speed, the mechanics of the election process, speeding up the ability to carve out small bargaining units, or as it's referred to, micro units, there's just an enormous amount of influence that's happening across the labor landscape right now that is really impairing the, the, the way that companies are able to engage with their employees, to educate them. And all of that, of course, is very intentional to, mm-hmm. to limit the opportunity for employers to persuade or influence employees from unionizing. And that's really the, the origin of a lot of General Counsel Abruzzo's agenda. Mm-hmm. And, and so how can the NLRB, and, and this is something that came up quite a while ago, affect the ways that we're able to communicate with workers, particularly during, during an organizing drive? Well, one of, one of the main threats, as I would call it, in uh, currently in today's board is this notion about limiting and curtailing uh, employers from having uh, educational meetings with their employees to educate them 
about the pros and cons of unionization to counterbalance, if you will, the messaging that organized labor shares with employees on the reasons for why they should organize. Mm -hmm. Companies should be given the same opportunity to give the counterbalance so that employees can make an educated choice. The current board, under the guidance of General Counsel Abruzzo, is wanting to make it very difficult for companies to have these open education sessions, organized labor, and the board refers to them as captive audience meetings, as if employees are held against their will. Right. But uh, the, these uh, these voluntary meetings that uh, that that employers pay their employees to come and get education, they they can stay for the meetings, they can leave for the meetings, oftentimes, but. This is a critical uh, communication vehicle that employers need to have to connect with their employees. And, and there's a lot of effort right now to, to really level the playing field, either to eliminate those sessions or if companies are going to have those sessions, that unions should get fair time for, for them to come in to places of employment to do their pitches, even though they're doing those outside of the workplace already. Mm-hmm. Well, and you mentioned um, a minute ago union organizer access to workplaces. What kind of decisions could the NLRB be making there? Well, again, a lot of what's driving the the current board agenda is this notion of leveling the playing field. And depending upon what ideology you buy into, the the, the current board under the Democratic majority feels that uh, employers have an upper hand, that they unnecessarily make it difficult, they make it challenging, threatening, et cetera, for employers to free associate and to engage in protected concerted activity. So one of those leveling of the playing fields is this notion that, look, if if companies are going to sit down with their employees and try to persuade and influence them not to unionize, then labor should have the same access to the potential bargaining unit members uh, as defined by the act and give their side of the story. So picture kind of like a debate, right? Where mm-hmm. the employers are giving their side, labor comes in and does their side. The argument mm-hmm. there from the business community is that organized labor can can get together with uh, employees outside at a restaurant, at a bar, at a union hall, or wherever, mm-hmm. anytime that they want. And uh, so that's that's the that's the debate. And so access is something that is very much uh, under discussion right now and will be a big part of the agenda going forward. Yeah, for sure. And in the, this latest memo from Abruzzo, really social media monitoring is being framed as surveillance. Can we talk about that a little bit? Yeah, this is really fascinating. Um, you know, when you think in terms of how employees have started communicating over in the age of information and technology, you know, back in the day before email, before Slack, before instant message, all of the current modalities that employees utilize to connect and collaborate today, you know, you had the famous water cooler, right? And so employees would gather around the water cooler and they would they would commiserate they would talk about their managers or supervisors a policy what they like what they don't like and you know it that was their that was their forum well fast forward today's water cooler is in the palm of their hand it's through all the digital platforms it's through social media the water cooler has gone virtual instant transmission of information in milliseconds through all the various social media platforms so the board is taking this fairly progressive position that this is today's water cooler. So if companies are going to monitor Facebook, Slack, Instagram, 
Snapchat, etc., then they should be, according to this board, obligated to notify their employees, hey, we're listening to you. Because it's real clear in the National Labor Relations Act that surveilling or spying is unlawful. So the, the current board is attempting to make this type of, of monitoring captured under this surveillance and spying uh, element of the National Labor Relations Act. So the board is attempting to modernize and become a little more progressive with respect to employers listening to their employees in social media, which, of course, could have a significant impact and potentially chill their ability to engage in protected concerted activity. Mm-hmm. And we, you talked a minute ago about um, the election process itself um, and the speed with which that's executed. Could the use of mail-in ballots in elections be impacted as well? Well, you know, during COVID, uh, mail ballots became status quo. It, it, there was no choice. And mm-hmm. uh, after years of resisting mail ballots and instead going for in-person elections, companies were forced uh, through the pandemic to, to do mail ballots. We've now seen, again, a flip-flop back to more in-person elections. Occasionally in various industries, such as healthcare, there still may be uh, mail ballots, but I think the proof point that occurred during the pandemic that mail ballots can work is something that we're probably going to see again coming back. Uh, the, the original thinking around mail ballots is that there could be opportunities for fraud. There could be opportunities for influence with people helping voters fill out their mail ballots, et cetera. Mm-hmm. You know, who knows whether we saw an abundance of that or not. But uh, mm-hmm. I think I think we've not seen the last of mail ballots. And there may be attempts strategically from organized labor's perspective to insert the mail ballot if they feel that that could perhaps aid in, in them being victorious. Mm-hmm. And what about the potential reversal of Joy Silk? Let's talk a little bit about card check. A lot of energy around Joy Silk when when General Counsel Abruzzo pulled out that sixty year old plus uh, case law about Joy Silk and attempted to breathe new life into what many of us uh, know as card check. It it brought a little bit of uh, post traumatic stress <laughs> disorder back sure. from the employee uh-huh. from the Employee Free Choice Act back in two thousand eight two thousand nine. Mm-hmm. But Joy Silk basically would would create a majority of uh, showing of interest status with cards only. Mm-hmm. Uh, it would be the burden of proof would be put on the employer to make assert claims that there is not a majority showing, and it, it would bypass the whole secret ballot election. Mm-hmm. This is something that that has a lot of lot of legs right now in the board. Uh, again, this is one of those redistribution of power over to the worker. And uh, I don't think we've seen the last of, of Joy Silk. This will be a bit of a battle. Uh, this is not going to just simply be a reversal or a return to the Joy Silk doctrine without a fight. Uh, the secret ballot is something that is very significant in uh, labor law history. And uh, those that support secret ballot elections are not simply going to just allow the return of card check to come without a pretty vigorous fight. Yeah, for sure. Fantastic information, Scott. Thank you so much. It is time for another quick break. We'll be right back after this. You're listening to the Project HR Podcast. I'm your host, Jennifer Oroqua, and my guest today is Scott Purvis, Chief Operating Officer for IRI Consultants. We're back. So, Scott, clearly there could be a lot of change coming over the next couple of years. What should companies be doing right now to stay ahead of these concerns? 
Well, the speed of change is is unlike anything we've seen in recent years. I think the return to some sense of normalcy after COVID, there was a lot of pent-up demand. Um, a lot of workplace dynamics are trying to be sorted through the whole return to the office dynamic, remote workers, the fatigue and frustrations in healthcare, the economy. There's just variables all over the place. And so all of that is contributing to a bit of a perfect storm right now that is introducing stress and strain in today's employee experiences across all industries. So companies need need to be very much dialed in to those stressors that their employees are under right now. They need to be paying attention. They need to be engaging with them. They need to be capturing their heads, their hearts, and their hands and communicating with them because there's a lot of variables many of which are happening outside of the workplace, but then are dragged into the workplace that are impacting employee experiences. And what worked a few years ago is just not relevant and is not going to work today. So those companies that are are leaning into their employees, that are focusing on communicating and meeting their employees where they are, that are showing sympathy and appreciation for uh, the hardships that many of their workers are going through, they're the ones that are going to win the war for talent. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. What role does training play? Upskilling leaders, uh, educating employees, and of course, for HR and labor teams, what, is, what role does training play in these preparations? Well, I think it plays a huge role. Unfortunately, it's the first thing that gets cut when budgets are under stress and strain, which of course mm-hmm. is another dynamic that we're seeing. We've got inflation happening. We've gotten, we have threats of recession happening in 2023. All of that's going to put a lot of stress on what some companies refer to as discretionary budgets. Unfortunately, training tends to fall into that category all too often. But tuning your frontline leaders and upskilling them to compete with five generations in today's workforce, to -hmm. understand the complexities that today's younger worker that is coming into the workforce, the millennials, the Gen Zs, what motivates them, how do they determine job satisfaction different from, say, a baby boomer or a Gen X, Gen Y? It is, it is really difficult to be an effective frontline leader in today's workplace, regardless of what, what line of business you're in. Mm-hmm. And companies need to recognize that, that, that you just can't let supervisors wing it or try <laughs> to figure things out. They need to understand how how to make those strong connections because frankly organized labor is is figuring out how to play into a lot of the stress and strain and they're capturing mind share at a greater rate than they ever have before mm-hmm. so training is absolutely critical to to invest in in your frontline leadership so that they when those employees look up and they see those supervisors which is the face of their experience they have confidence they have trust and they know that that person has got their best interest in mind. Mm-hmm. Well, and speaking of the different generations, you know, we we talk we've talked a lot on Project HR about social justice issues and how this matters um, to younger generations, where they feel that they bring their entire selves to work. It's not that they have a professional self and they have a personal self; they are bringing their entire self. So, does discussing labor issues fall into the category of social justice? Should should companies can they afford to remain silent? What should the the strategy be there? Well, you know, the days of being afraid of saying the, the word union, the days of, of not being willing to engage with your employees about your position on, on labor unionization within your workforce is really old school thinking. Um, mm-hmm. the, this, this folklore 
urban legend about if you talk about it, it will happen. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I in the 30 years that I've practiced at labor relations, employee relations, and HR, I've never seen that happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've never it's we've we, it just it just doesn't work that way. And so mm-hmm. the the transparency issue, which that word is heavily used in a lot of context in today's work workplace. But being transparent with your employees, taking a position on some of the social justice issues, it's no longer acceptable to put your head in the sand. Mm-hmm. Um, and companies companies typically are a little gun shy to to move away. You know, they don't want to they don't want to take a position. And or and having a firm position on labor relations, there should be a, a real easy elevator speech in the back pocket of every frontline leader mm-hmm. that when an employee asks what our position is, they should feel confident to share with with those employees and leadership should feel comfortable talking about why we don't think we need someone to stand between us. Uh, instead, we want to work collaboratively to make this the best workplace possible between us. And of course, our company, IRI Consultants, helps organizations manage labor relations and provides companies with effective communication strategies. So how can IRI help companies prepare for the changes that might be coming in the new year and beyond? Well, I think one of the the main things, Jen, is is that I focus our firm on is continuing to be a thought leader across all of the areas in which we support our clients, whether it's in communications, organizational development, leadership development, and obviously labor relations. A lot of the trends that we're seeing on a national basis, we try to capture in a lot of our white papers, our, our thought leadership articles, things that that are available for public consumption to try to be a little bit provocative to help organizations think about things a little bit differently. You heard me say earlier, I use this term modernization of your labor relations strategy. Mm. You know, those playbooks, the way that the way that uh, internal organizations, the messaging, the strategies, the calendars, all of the things that that are available on the bookshelf, so to speak, those things have really expired. And a lot of a lot of that, should they be called into play, are not going to be relevant. And so we we try to to help pivot organizations to think about labor relations in a very progressive, proactive, employee first, employee centric way to help them be ready so that when organized labor breaks out some of their strategies, which quite frankly are extremely effective, your offensive posture is is ready to go. All right. So if we want to find out more about you, about IRI consultants, the insight and strategies that IRI offers, where can we go? Sure. A number of ways to get a hold of us. Obviously, you can find me on LinkedIn, visit our website. We uh, speak at a lot of national conferences, not only myself, but our entire leadership team. Uh, we're certainly available for consultation and love to engage with anyone on this topic and, and to help you think a little bit differently on making your labor relations strategy the best that it can be. Very good. And of course, all of that information links, everything will be noted in this week's episode companion. So you can grab that for free at iriconsultants.com slash podcast. Right now, though, Scott, it is time for our lightning round questions. And these are questions I ask of every guest of the podcast. Are you ready? I'm ready. Let's go. All right. Our first question is always a topic showdown. In this episode, we've been talking about the NLRB and the midterm elections. So in your opinion, Scott, which of these fictional election movies was better? Reese Witherspoon's Election or John Heater's Napoleon Dynamite? Oh, absolutely. Vote for Pedro. Napoleon Dynamite all the way. (laughs) Very good. Very good. All right, Scott, what is the best book that you've read recently? You know, I actually revisited one of my favorites, John Miller's uh, QBQ, The Question Before the Question. Mm -hmm. uh, It stands the test of time on personal accountability. It's, It's a great read. 
Yeah, that is a very good one. All right, next question. What is your favorite thing about the work that you do? I love helping helping leaders connect with the hearts and minds of, of employees and seeing those connections get made and the lights go off. There's nothing, nothing better. For sure. All right, so what is the best piece of advice you've ever been given? You know, a good friend of mine once told me, always remember the shadow that you cast and the influence that you have on others around you. You have the ability to either make it a great day or make it a not so great day. All right, last question, who or what inspires you? Yeah, you know, I I really think it's my son. I've had an opportunity here lately to spend some time with him. He actually is in the the HR consulting space as well, but his his lens, his inspiration, his his optimism, it 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 helps me connect with today's younger worker and it keeps me relevant in the work that we do at IRI. I love that. That's a great answer. Scott, thanks so much for joining me today on this week's episode of Project HR. Jen, it's been great. I appreciate the opportunity. Thanks so much. I also want to thank those listening in. Here's a final reminder to unlock your access to this episode's companion guide at iriconsultants.com slash podcast. If you're ready for your Project HR debut, our team is always looking for outstanding guests. Let us know about your expertise at projecthr at iriconsultants.com. Of course, don't forget to subscribe to Project HR. A new episode posts every Thursday. Finally, drop me a line, leave us a review, or give the show a handful of stars wherever you get your content. That's all for this week's episode of Project HR. Let's make it a great day at work.